Welcome everyone to another episode of Bedtime with Dan. Um, part three of Introduction to the Gods. Hopefully we'll get it finished today, but I've just had a look and it's quite long. So we're going to have to power through. A little disclaimer for this after the third part three. The names I am very surely getting wrong. So if you're talking to anyone about these stories, do not try and repeat the way I'm saying them. I would Google them first. <laughs> but anyway, let's go with part three. Apollo. All hail, blessed Leto, mother of the Lord Apollo and the Lady Artemis. When you were pregnant and your time was due, you travelled the known world, seeking a safe haven where you could give birth. But dread of Apollo gripped all the lands, and only the humble island of Delos was willing to accept you and him. For the barren island had nothing to distinguish it, but as the centre of the worship of the golden youth, it has attended wealth and eternal fame. And before it was rootless, a wandering isle, by ingratitude you fix it in place. Sacred also to Apollo is Delphi, which lies at the centre of the universe. For Father Zeus released two eagles from the opposing ends of the earth, and there they met. When the Lord Apollo came down from Olympus to find a site for his oracle, he came to Chrysa and slew the she-dragon under snow-caped Parnassus and made the place his own. Chrysa came to be known as Delphi because Apollo, in the form of a dolphin, brought Cretan sailors to the land there to serve as the first priests of the ocular sanctuary. Nowadays, young maidens serve as Apollo's sigils, but though Apollo speaks through the mouths of the maidens elsewhere as well, he declares the law most clearly from Delphi, and the heavens there are filled with light that gleams on the precipice of the shining rocks and sparks on the crystal waters of the sacred spring. For he, in the source of the light of law, education and civilization, the lyre is his, and his minstrels play sweet music that soothes the savage beast. For poetry, as we bards know well, is the sister of prophecy. Rich in gold is Apollo, with gold lyre and golden bow, golden locks and golden tunic. But he is vast, a god who is great enough to contain multitudes. He is the far shooter, for he must stand apart to do his work, and as well as the lyre, he lay claim to the bow. Sweet music is his, but also the pain. Sung in triumph or as a war cry, he is the god who both spreads the mesium of sickness and despairs it. He is gentle and violent, fair of face and dark of brow, healer and destroyer. Praise the god in his greatness. May he grant us only good and advert and all evil in our days. Whoever knows Apollo is raised to greatness. Whoever does not know him is bound to be of lower estate. Now, Athena, stately goddess, invented the pipes to imitate the sweet, keening sound of the dirg of the gorgons made to mourn Medusa's death. She delighted in the reedy tone, stepping lightly in tune, but as she was playing the pipes one day, she caught sight of her reflection in a pond and hated the way she was disfigured by the straps that bound the pipes of her face. 
Away she held the loathing instrument and it fell to Pygia. There it was picked up by Satyr Masaeus, who learned to play so slowly that the clouds wept with sadness at the plaintive melody. In pride at his accomplishment, Masaeus challenged Apollo to a contest. Pipes against Lear. So be it, agreed golden-haired Apollo, and let the winner do whatever he likes with the loser. Messiah spent some time in contemplation, listening to the source of sound, and when he played it as if he had heard the secret song of the world, Apollo himself, with his lyre, could do no better. But he was a god, and tolerated no such insult as Messiah's challenge. He flayed all the skin from Messiah's body, and the sight of tears formed the river that still bears his name. Many are the tales that are told of Apollo, even fair and ever young. He has loved and been loved by many a maiden and youth. He loved Dalphine, fair nymph, daughter of the river, river Pensus. His passion for her was as none before or since, for he had sneered at the arrows of Eros, saying that his aim is more true. In response, the god of love simply loosened a single barb at the golden god. Even he, the healer, had no cure for this sickness. But Dalphine had sworn to remain a virgin and repulsed his advances. She was loved also by Lysippus, the son of Enomus. He dressed as a woman to join her th- throne and be closer to her. So Apollo, in his jealousy put into Delphine's head to bathe in the river. In the river. Poor Lysippus, he desired to see her nudity, but not that she should see his. When he refused to undress and swim with the other girls, his deceit was revealed. And in that outrage, Delphine and her friends pulled him into the river and drowned him. But Apollo was not to be put off, and he pursued her as a hunter pursues a hare. Though she ran from him as a lamb flees a wolf, away she sprinted, but the gods sped close on her heels. In desperation, she prayed to her father for release from her beauty, so that she should suffer wrong no more. Peneus had no quarrel with Apollo, but he honoured his daughter's vow of chastity, and in an instant her prayer was answered. Even as she was running, her limbs stiffened and her toes sought the darkness of the earth. There in her place stood a laurel tree but Apollo loved her still and made the laurel his sacred tree even now the winners of the Pythian games of Delphine received no material reward but a garland of buried glory and the blessing of the god Apollo also loved Cassandra princess of Troy and when she agreed to give herself to him he rewarded her with the gift of prophecy but then she insulted the gods by changing her mind Apollo asked her for one last kiss, and when she turned her face to him, he spat a curse in her mouth. Ever thereafter, she was doomed to prophesy in vain, for no one believed a word she said, and all took her for a madwoman. Apollo loved Hyacinthus of Sparta too, and it was their pleasure to anoint themselves with olive oil and test each other's athletic prowess. Once Apollo took into his hands the weighty discus and held it true and far. Arsynthus, in his joy, ran after the discus, laughing, to pick it up and take his turn at the fair sport. But the Spartan prince had spurned the advantage of Zephyrus, 
the west wind. And in his anger, Zephyrus turned the discus back. It struck Hyacinthus full in the face, and he died cradled in Apollo's arms. Two exalted sons were born to Apollo, the healer Asclepius and the minstrel Orpheus. Cornus was loved by Apollo and was pregnant with their son, Asclepius. But the white raven, Apollo's bird, saw her lying with another and told his master, quick-tempered Apollo, and told his master, quick-tempered Apollo seized his bow and shot her dead. But he could not bear that his son should die as well. And even as Coronis lay on the pyre, the mighty god snatched his son out of the flames and his mother's womb and brought him to the cave of the centaur Syrian for him to raise the boy. But he changed forevermore the raven's colour from white to black, a bitter reward for the bearer of bitter ridings. Meanwhile, Asclepius grew up to bear his father's gifts as a healer and even to surpass them. For the time came when the lady Artemis asked him to heal her follower Hippolytus, the son of Theseus, though he was dead. Perilous Asclepius exerted all his skill, and at last the young man breathed again. But as a mortal, Alepius had breathed his last. For Zeus blasted him with a thunderbolt for violating the law of nature. But Alepius was taken into the heavens and is the patron god of medicine, beloved by many for his healing power. Apollo, however, was furious at the killing of his son, and in revenge he swift arrows soon found at the hearts of three cyclopses, Hephaestus' assistants, makers of Zeus's thunderbolt. But the will of Zeus is not to be scorned, and the son of Cronos, the cloud-gatherer, was ready to hurl Apollo down to the Tartarus, to be imprisoned there forever. But kind Leto intervened, and instead Apollo was sentenced to serve for one year under Anmentus, king of the Thessalian Phira. Now Adamaeus had but a short time to live, and Apollo took pity on his master and begged the fates to stay his death. The fates agreed, providing that someone could be found to take Adamaeus's place. No one was willing, save only loyal... Cestis, his wife, and Adamaeus accepted her sacrifice, but Hercules wrestled death himself for the life of fair Cestis and won, and restored her to her husband. Orpheus, son of the fair shooter by the muse Calliope, was such a gifted musician that, as he sung and played on his lyre, the breezes stopped to listen in, wild beasts followed tamed in his train, and the trees bent down their lofty crowns to hear the sweet strains. Now, Atheus loved the beautiful oak nymph Eurydice, and the charm of his music warmed her heart. But on the day of their wedding, the very day, she was being pursued by Aristus, the lusty god of beekeeping and olive growing. Deep in the woods she plunged to escape him, where she was bitten by a snake and died. The world has seen no grief like that of Orpheus. He dared to descend into the underworld and sang his request to grim Hades and his vile wife, Parisphone. As the sound of the song, Cerberus pricked up his ears. Titius ventures raised their gory beaks. Cephas sat on his boulder and listened enchanted. The dark deities laid aside their habitual indefense and heard his heartfelt plea. 
and allowed Eurydice to return from the dead. There was only one condition. Orpheus was not to look back at her until they had left the halls of Hades. Long dark passages they travelled, and at least they were on the threshold. And just then Orpheus glanced over his shoulder for his beloved, whose footfall behind him he could no longer hear. Immediately Eurydice lost substance and fell back from whence she came. However much he pleaded, however long he lingered on the banks of the Styx, foul river of the dead, gloomy Sharon refused to ferry him across the second time. Orpheus left the banks of Styx and wandered discontent in Thrace, choosing wilderness to spare lives, for many would have died from sorrow of hearing his song of mourning. Only the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth suffered the shafts of his bitter strains. But Mades too chose the wilderness when Decius possessed them, and a band of them found him asleep and mistook him for an enemy. They tore him to pieces and his head and lear, still laminated, floated down the hubris to the restless sea. But he and his beloved Eurydice were never again separated. Artemis. As Apollo stands apart, so does his twin sister Artemis. She is the mistress of animals, and her pleasure is in the wild and remote places. She is a chaste virgin, disdainful, undefiled, and free. Men are not of her liking, and as a girl she begged her father Zeus for chastity, and that she should be as great as a deity as a noble brother, and a great Zeus granted her every desire. She ranges with her attendant nymphs over shady hills and the windy heights of virgin wilderness. Unsullied by man, Pan gave her Arcadian hunter hounds, the best of their kind, and she deals death with arrows crafted by the cyclopses that were fit her silver bow. She wears the horns of the cold, chesty moon on her headdress. She is the overwhelmed and fearsome presence within untamed lands, where mortal men find how puny they are, and as she passes through the moonlight, the hills tremble and the valleys with them and all the bees cry and howl. She is the V of flying geese, and the yellow glare in a lynx's eyes. She is the all-mother, the protector of all young creatures, and some she allows to live while the weaklings are cold. She abides on the margins, and change over points, especially when girls become women, and women become mothers. The people of Thebes gave Leto great honour as the mother of the twin deities, Apollo and Artemis. But arrogant Niobe, wife of the king Amphion, disagreed. As the daughter of Tantulus and granddaughter of Atlas, she claimed that her lineage was greater than that of Leto. She also begged that since she had borne and raised a great number of children, her life was more filled with blessings, and she might indeed have been the happiest of mothers, if only she had not boasted of it. For the insult of, to their mother... Apollo and Artemis removed Niobe's blessings. Apollo shot down her six sons, while Artemis did the same with her six daughters, except for one called Chloris. The tangling of their bows mangled with the screams of the dying, and the corpse remained unburied for nine days. Niobe was turned to stone and carried away by a tornado to her native Lydia, where her tears still tickled from the ordinate rock of Mount Siplus. Apollo and Artemis 
again avenged Leto's honor when huge Titius, the son of the earth, tried to rape her as she was on her way one day to Delphi. The twin deities hunted down the giant, and when they found him, they riddled him with their arrows. Down to Hades he lurched, where his body was spread out massively over the ground, and on either side sit a vulture, feasting forever on his liver. Actian of Thebes, learned in the lore of the forest, was relaxing at midday after a morning of good hunting. He loved his aunt, Semele, but she was the beloved of Zeus. The jealous anger swelled in the breast of the great god, father of gods and men. He put it into the mind of Artian to take his rest, all unknowing in the grove of Artemis, where the goddess came to be bathed by her attendant nymphs in a limpid pool of cool water sheltered by a cave. No mortal man sees Artemis naked and lives. While the nymphs screamed at the sight of the man and tried to cover their mistress' nakedness, she rose to her feet, majestic and unafraid, and revealed all her glory to him in his last moments as a mortal man. With a mere flick of her wrist, she splashed him lightly with water from the pool, and before the last drops had rolled like tears down his cheek, antlers had already sprouted from his head. The stag dropped onto all fours and fled, while Actaeon's own hounds gave chase with slavering jaws he tried to shout at them to calm them as he had passed but instead of their master's voice they had only the bellowing of a terrified stag soon they caught him and brought him down and the pack leader's powerful jaws closed over his windpipe and gripped tightly until the stag breathed no more with none to command them the rest of the pack set to and tore him to pieces who had once been their beloved master and Artemis, mistress of animals, was pleased, for the purity of the god goddess is not to be tainted even by accident. Callisto spent her days and nights in the mountains of Arcadia, hunting and living wild with Artemis and her nymphs, but she was very fair and desired flared in Zeus's heart and loins. He came to her, taking on the appearance of Artemis, as she rested alone one day in the dell. Too late did the maiden discover his trick, when he forced his embrace on her, she fought him back, but no mortal or god, god can resist the power of Zeus. The weeks and months rolled by, and the time came when Artemis called on all of her, her followers to bathe with her, for there was no man to see them. Callisto blushed and hesitated, but she had no choice, and her nakedness made her pregnancy plain for all to see. Artemis in anger turned the maiden into a bear and banished her from her entourage and the bear gave birth to a son, Arcus, who was raised by Mia, the mother of Hermes. But later, Callisto wandered into the forbidden sanctuary of Zeus and was about to be killed by Arcus himself, for he had become a masterful hunter. But Zeus took pity on his former lover and translated her into the heavens as the great bear constellation. Orion was a mighty hunter, the son of Poseidon, and the lover of Eos, the dawn light, so vast and fleet of foot that he could cross valleys at a bound, and his father endowed him with the ability to walk on water. But once drunk on Chios, the island produces the best wines, he raped the king's daughter, and for this sin he was blinded. He took a young boy in his shoulders and commanded him to lead him eastward, and as the sun rose, Eos shone her light straight into the lover's eyes and cured him. 
and he returned to Crete, where he was awarded the unique honour of hunting in the company of Artemis and Leto. So successful was his clearing the earth of the ferocious beasts that preyed on men's flocks and livelihoods that he fell to boasting. There's no creature, he cried, that I could not bring down with a strong spear or a swift arrow. Zeus's brow darkened at this foolish boast, and in anger he sent against Orion a great scorpion. The contest was over as quick as the flicking of the monster's tail. Zeus raised the victor into the heavens, and at Artemis' request, did the same for Orion. And in the heavens, the scorpion chases Orion forever. Orion, however, chases the Pleiades, the seven daughters of Atlas, after whom he had lusted in life. For seven years he had pursued them, until Zeus in his mercy made them stars. Hermes. Many tales are told too of crafty Hermes, son of Zeus by the nymph Mia. From the moment he came into being, his restless nature was plain. It is said that, on the very day of his birth, he found and killed a tortoise, scooped out the soft flesh and strung the hollow shell to make his first leer. Then, the same night, he stole the cattle of the archer god Apollo to mislead any who should be giving chase. He drove the cattle backwards while walking forwards himself and disguising his barefoot baby prince with oversized sandals strapped to his feet like snowshoes. Having corralled the cattle, he invented a fire stick and used it to light a cooking fire on which he roasted two whole cows and ate them. Then he returned to the cave of his birth and clambered into his cot, cooing innocently. But Apollo guessed who the culprit was and threatened to toss the baby down into Tartarus. At first Hermes lied, I'm just a baby, how could I have stolen any cattle? But then he confessed, and to reconcile with Apollo gave him the lyre. Apollo took the instrument to as his own, and in return made for Hermes a three-pronged Sardicus wand, the living golden staff that will be the symbol and sign forever. forever. Hermes is the god of the sudden and unexpected, the elusive and edgy, he governs thievery, trade and bargaining, messages and mischief, invention and inspiration. He is the trickster and the eternal adolescent, before he comes when least expected, and not always when he's called. He is the restless god of magic and of luck, his countenance never still. He is the god of borders and crossing, the god of flocks, which stray without his, go his guidance, the wayfinder into whose hands travellers commend themselves. He appears out of the blue, bringing good fortune or a message from the gods, perhaps in the form of a lucid dream, or he snatches a dying man and guides him to the underworld. For the journey between life and death takes but an instant. When a sudden silence falls, or joy thrills his heart, there is Hermes, unanticipated opportunities for love of fortune are his gifts. Some say that that Hermes fathered Pan, goat-footed deity of the mountains and valleys, on the remotest crags and peaks of the meadows, and the sweetest sounds of his reed pipes echoed in the canyons in the late afternoon as the shepherds call their flock. Pan invented the pipes when he lost the nymph he was chasing and turned his attention instead to the reeds where he was hidden. Another musical maiden he loved was Echo, who could imitate any sound in the world. When she spurned him, he drove some shepherds insane 
and they tore the fair nymph into pieces. But earth buried each scattered piece of her, and still the secret places where her parts are buried returns the sound of others. Pan is the god of shepherds and the hunter of small animals, of the kind that keep men alive during their months of vigil, watching over their flocks in the hills and mountains. But he is also the bringer of panic, when flocks or men in battle for no reason stampede and turn to frantic flight. And he was called Pan all, for he was pleased to all the gods, but especially to Decius. Dionysus, sweet muse, tell at least the twice-born Dionysus, his mother was Semiel, daughter of Cadmus, who Zeus loved. But when Hera found out, in her jealousy she plotted her rival's death. She appeared to Semiel in the guise of her aged nurse and persuaded her that, as the bedmate of the ruler of all, she should be equal to Hera, that Zeus should appear to her as a god, not as a mortal man. And Semiel listened to the goddess's honeyed lies, for she wanted to know the greatest pleasure of lying with a god, not a, man, a human form. When Zeus next came to her in the earthly disguise, she teased her lover and made him promise to do whatever she asked. Her request, of course, was for him to reveal himself. The great god hesitated, for he knew what would happen, but he had given her word and came blazing to her bed. As Hera had planned, Semil was consumed by the brilliance of Zeus's majesty, but the cloud-gatherer took upon his unborn son from her lifeless womb and sewed him into his thigh, from where he was born again when his time came. Later on, Dionysus went down to Hades to recover his mother, and she dwells now forever with the blessed gods of Olympus. Dionysus is the god of viticulture and wine, a joy for mortal men and hence of ecstasy and liberation for the conventions of society. He is the sap of life, the blood throbbing in the veins, the sweet burst of the grape in the mouth. He is the god of the theatre, for men permit themselves to release their emotions, for better or for worse. When absorbed in the marvellous productions of playwrights, Dionysus is now as Bromus, the rebel, and his robe is as gorgeous as any girl's. His gift is freedom, and so let regard and so little regard has he for what men call law and custom that his followers, the raving maenad women, are set to tear apart wild animals and eat them raw. When they are possessed by the god and endowed with superhuman strength, they drink his blood like wine and eat his flesh. For the other gods keep their distance. But Dionysus possessed his followers completely and is wholly possessed in return. Clad in foreskins and clutching sacred Thrice's staff, entwined with ivory and topped with a pine cone, they reveal with wild abandon in this countryside to the sound of the pipes and the kimble, grasping poisonous stakes with immunity and petting tame panthers. Meanwhile, the horse-eared Selene and goat-bearded satyrs who attended the god go about their lust, lusty business. Many a tale is told of the fate suffered by those who resist the entry of his shocking and unconventional religion. When Ligarus of Thrace drove his followers off the mountain, great Zeus, the father of Dionysus, blinded the men for his blindness. And when all the women of Thebes 
thronged to the hills and forests to worship the god, King Penthus persecuted them, and for his pains was killed by his mother and sister. The fool spied on their worship and was discovered, but the woman failed to recognise him in their god-induced frenzy. They tore him limb from limb as easy as they would a rabbit, releasing their gruesome task as a sign of their devotion to the god. And the Botian Orchomenaeus, the daughters of Minyas, refused to acknowledge the god's divinity and joined the other women in the countryside. They preferred to stay indoors as they believed good women should and get on with their weaving. Dionysus appeared to them as a girl to warn them of their folly, for the god is not without pity, but they ignored him. He drove them mad, and one of them tore her own baby to bits. In the course of the missionary travels, spreading the word of the religion, Dionysus came to the Athens. There he taught King Padian the art of nurturing the vine, and turning its fruit into blessed wine. But some drunken peasants, not appreciating the divine gift of the god, thought their king had poisoned them. They killed Padian and hid his body. His daughter, Aragon, led to the woodland, gave by her father's faithful dog, hanged herself in grief from a sturdy branch. But Dionysus always retaliates. He drove the women of Athens mad, and forever after they propitiate the gods by hanging little fetishes of Aragorn in trees and setting them to swing. Once, as a youth, Dionysus was captured by pirates as he walked onto the shore, and they were pleased, for they thought him the son of a king and worth a fine ransom. They bound him with strong rope, but the rope fell in worthless coils to the deck of the ship. When the pirates remained heedless of this warning, Further signs appeared. The ship's hull flowed with sweet wine, vines and ivy, thick with fruit and blooming flowers, entangled the mast and the sails, and phantom shapes as the tigers and panthers prowled the deck. Then the god became a lion, devoured the ship's captain, while the rest of the sailors leapt into the sea and were turned into dolphins. Only the helmsman survived, for he had recognised the god's divinity and carried him safely over the waters to the holy haven, the lush land of Naxos. On high Olympus, the gods are attended at their golden feats by Hebe, daughter of Zeus and Hera, for she is the ideal of young noble womanhood, loyal to her elder kin and dedicated to their service. But Zeus' special cup-bearing is Ganymede, once the mortal prince of Troy, so fair of face and form that Zeus could not resist his charms, and had had him carried up to Olympus by a whirlwind. Though some say Zeus bore him off himself in the form of an eagle, the lad's father, Tros, was grieved, for he did not know where his son had gone. But Zeus sent Hermes to give him the Glad tidings that Ganymede was held high of Zeus's honour and would remain youthful forever. As further recompense for his loss, Zeus gave Tros immortal horses, the pick of his shiny herds, and so fair Ganymede stands devoted by the throne of Zeus, ready for the golden cup of sweet nectar, and Hebe modest, modestly supervises the feasting and ensuring that all the appetites are satisfied at the banquet table of the gods 
These are the gods and goddesses who dwell forever in bliss in the halls of High Olympus. The tales that are told about them endue them with traits like their own. As though they were simple, many times more powerful and wise than mortal men and women. Yet one unbridgeable chasm is set. They are eternal and carefree. While men soon wither and die like leaves from a tree. And their lives are filled with with toil and sorrow. The gods are then finally incomprehensible to mortal minds. Just as a monkey cannot understand a man. And that is why we speak to them in parables the storyteller's job is to shed light no more we finally did it that was a long episode but we had to get rid of it so we had to get rid of it we had to get through it so we could move on but that's all of the main gods their daughters and there was a lot of names in those three parts but i hope you enjoyed it and um i'll catch you for the regular show on friday thanks guys see you later